Well, welcome back to Christ and Kingdom. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike Tiemann. I'm from Southern California at the Rock Community Church. I'm joined with my good friend Emilio Ramos from City View Church in Frisco, Texas, and founder of Red Grace Media. And we've been going through Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Christian life, and we're almost at the halfway mark through the book. And we've been uh, what a what an amazing amazing book this is. This is truly a life changing book that should be on the top of of everybody's book pile next to their their bed and on their shelf and visited often and we're picking up the topic today of repentance and as a pastor uh, I was reading this this chapter thinking I need to somehow get this chapter into into the hands of every single person in my church every every person I come in contact with because I think this is this is a massively misunderstood topic of, of Christianity um, and something that will, will do us good. There's so much freedom in this topic when we understand repentance rightly. And so I'm here with my good friend, Emilio. Emilio, why don't you, you chime in and say hi, and then uh, we will start this discussion. Hey, Amen, brother. It's great to be with you for another episode. Looking forward to this one. Uh, just like you said, I mean, the doctrine of repentance is so important. And of course, Sinclair Ferguson in this book uh, just knocks it out of the park as always and uh, sets our vision on a proper doctrine of true repentance and uh, is something that is so important, not only for pastors and preachers and and theologians, but also just uh, how to administer this doctrine in the church and uh, to get people to understand what is true repentance, what does repentance look like? And uh, this could touch on real practical things, like when people give their testimony, let's say for church membership and things like that, and and getting people to understand the dynamics of their own conversion, their own repentance. And even as uh, kind of the emphasis, really, of this chapter is going to be how repentance uh, is relevant to the entire Christian life, not just at the moment of conversion, but uh, that becomes really, really important. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. And... uh, excited for another episode. We've been going for a while now. I think this is episode, what, 39, 38, 39, something like that. I think it's 38. And uh, so, yeah, really excited. Christ and Kingdom is a very, very encouraging time uh, uh, of discussion, and we hope that this content will continue to minister to people. So Amen. looking forward to this one. Amen. So in the last chapter, he's talking about faith in Christ, regeneration, all those. And he, he starts chapter eight on page 65. And he says, we have already noted that faith and repentance are twin doctrines and cannot be, be separated. Why and how is that true? Yeah, so good. Uh, I think he's absolutely right. Uh, I've heard it put in different ways, but it's two sides of the same coin. It's um, biblical repentance, biblical or conversion, right? Especially if you're thinking about salvation. It's not just turning to someone, right? It's also turning away from something. It's not just turning away from something. It's also turning to someone. So you, you, you can't have one without the other. You can't have, and you think about that as so important to the theology of salvation as a whole, that what we're telling people in what we're saying and what the Bible is teaching in repentance is not just hey, change your behavior. There's a lot of folks out there uh, that can go to AA, they can go seek Mm. therapy, they can go to a counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist, and they can get help therapeutically to stop doing certain behaviors, maybe stop drinking, stop doing drugs, uh, you know, other addictions that they can be, that can be uh, sort of uh, ameliorated through uh, technique and through medicine and things like that. Uh, But that is not repentance. That's not conversion. Um, I'll give you an example, Mike. I recently reunited with an old friend of mine that we both go back to uh, pre-conversion times for me. Uh, And uh, in talking to uh, this this guy, uh, this old friend of mine, uh, you know, he has indeed uh, changed his life in many ways from what we used to be uh, in, in, in the world. Um, and you would look at his life and you would think his life is pretty, at this point, you know, it's 
pretty upstanding. You know, he's a business guy. He's a family guy. Uh, you know, is looking to obey the law, pay his taxes. You know, he is uh, not a criminal. You know, he's doing he's doing well for himself and for his family. And you would look at that and say, hey, this guy changed his life mm-hmm. uh, from being, you know, a thug or being a, a, a drug addict or whatever. But that's not enough, is it? It's not enough to simply morally reform yourself. Uh, if if the change that has happened in a person's life, whatever, however fundamental it is, if it doesn't involve a personal trajectory uh, to God, if you do not turn to God in the same act of turning away from your sin, that is not repentance. Mm. And uh, and at the same at the same time, Mike, how many times have we encountered people? who will say a great deal about God and who will tell you, oh, yes, I believe in God, and oh, man, now I'm active in the church and blah, blah, blah. But then you hear that they're still up to the same old behavior and that they're still running in the world. They're still uh, doing the same kind of sinful activity that they used to. Uh, and But they'll tell you, boy, I tell you what, I, I love God. I worship. I go to church all the time, Right. But what does it show you that though they claim to have turned to a person, namely God, yet it is evident that they have not turned away from their sin. And so it has to be both. And only when both are involved can we actually say that that is a spirit-wrought yeah. repentance. So absolutely, uh, I think that's that's a a. a a perfect place uh, to start. Yeah. And he quotes Calvin. I mean, right off, right off the bat here. And Calvin says this repentance is the true turning of our life to God. I circled the word true, right? Cause I think that that's so central to the idea. It's a, we're looking for the true repentance, not superficial, not, not moralistic repentance, as you said, but repentance is the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of him. And it consists in the mortification of our flesh and of the old man and in the vivification of the spirit. Um, and then, end quote, and then Sinclair Ferguson goes on, says, although we are still at the stage of considering the privileges and experiences which stand at the gate of the Christian life, we must not lose sight of this lifelong dimension in repentance. And he, he uses that term lifelong, as you, you uh, mentioned just a few minutes ago. And so Sinclair Ferguson establishes his thesis on this topic that true repentance isn't merely a sorrow that we feel at the first day of our conversion, but a lifelong dimension of the Christian's reality. Uh, It's the difference between I feel sorry that I got caught and hopefully next time that doesn't happen and a a private Holy Spirit driven daily burden um, and conviction Mm -hmm. of our sin and the pursuit of 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 purity um and that's Mm -hmm. that's the nature of of true repentance and Mm so um you know that's his his second uh category there is the nature of of true repentance and he goes through uh some of the old testament concepts of repentance um and he says this and and, and i'm going to give you just a uh a minute to kind of comment on anything you would like to hear. But in the top of page 67, he says, true repentance is inward, not merely external or, or superficial. Um, and he states this after using, like I said, the old Testament Israel as an example. And can you summarize and explain his, his point in this, this section, uh, specifically highlighting the three evidences of genuine repentance. Yeah, yeah, taken from the history of Israel, which is important because we are told in the New Testament, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, repeatedly, I think it's verse 7, 11, and 16, uh, we are told that Israel, right, is an example, and that we are to draw from the example of ancient Israel in order to learn more uh, of the dynamics of our own repentance, or really our own walk with God, even in a new covenant, which I think is, is, is really important. But 
Yeah, he draws these three different evidences of genuine repentance from the Old Testament, where he talks about that in, in, in terms of what true repentance is, number one, it is a new trust in the Lord. And uh, he quotes Isaiah 30, verse 15, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And so that uh, this is the congruent nature of old and new. This is old covenant, new covenant, mm. Old Testament, New Testament, but that nothing really has changed in terms of the nature of true repentance, even as we go from old to new, in that it is fundamentally a trusting in the Lord. And that is what repentance is. Before it is a work, before it is obedience, before it is manifested in different characteristics, the very first thing that it is, is faith in God and a casting yourself on God, of, of, putting, uh, of putting your trust wholly in God and not in yourself. And I think that's a really important uh, important aspect or evidence of what genuine repentance looks like. And when it, when it actually has happened is you see people trusting themselves to the Lord. And so I thought that was a good point. But he also says that of the, um, you know, that, that also of this, the first fruits of obedience, a measure of which had formerly been seen in Jeremiah's day. And then he quotes Jeremiah 34, verse 15, namely this idea that repentance leads to obedience. He says, you recently re- repented and did what was, what was been, uh, excuse me, what was uh, right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty with each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. And so he's quoting there Jeremiah 34, verse 15, that Israel, as evidence of its repentance, uh, it led to uh, a distinct kind of obedience and a renewal to God. And so a, a, a sort of renewed zeal to proclaim the liberty of God, to proclaim the salvation of the Lord in the house of God. And so he's going to make a, a sort of a, a broad general statement that true repentance, especially in the Old Testament, uh, as we l- draw from that and, 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 and um, as we seek to learn from that, it is covenantal. It is Israel returning to, to uh, uh, its faithfulness mm. to the covenant and to go back to its covenantal obligations as a nation and as a people. And I think that's exactly right. But he also says that part of not only just obeying the Lord uh, in, in, in certain ways, he also says that that obedience, the third thing, is that it is manifested in a rejection of ungodliness. And so again, he turns uh, to, uh, to Jeremiah 26 and 36 as evidence that true repentance, according to Jeremiah, is a turning away from wickedness, which I thought was really good. And I think it's really important to zero in on that because he'll actually go in on this even further uh, in a minute. But that true repentance, right, is actually acknowledging what wickedness is and turning away from it. And so many people, again, want to morally reform their lives without properly defining what is right and what is wrong, what is, what is wicked and what is righteous, what is godly and ungodly, what is in keeping with God's law and what is a violation of the law. And in that, if we don't carefully define those things, then we can very easily um, begin sort of constructing our own view of spirituality and repentance, and, and, and we can start kind of prioritizing certain things in our lives and not in keeping with God's law and actually defining sin for what it is. That's what's absolutely mm. critical here. So yeah, I think these three aspects here, rooted in the Old Testament, rooted in the examples of the prophets, the preaching and teaching of the prophets, um, is very, very instructive for us today. Yeah. At the bo- kind of towards the bottom of page 67, he says, in some English versions of the New Testament, two words are translated by repent, mataneo, uh, which means to change one's mind, uh, typically how it's kind of simply defined, and metamelomai, sorry, I miss metamelomai, which really means to have regret rather than to repent. And and those are going to come because he's going to build on that later as he gets into 2 Corinthians. Um, uh there, so those are kind of two words that he he brings out uh, that are going to be important for the rest of the conversation. Anything, uh, anything you want to add to that, or any any explanation you want to give to that? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the obviously the, the most critical term is, you know, metanoia and uh, metaneo is the verb form of that to repent. But repentance, metanoia, is very important because it is a compound word, meta, naas, and naas means mind, meta means change. And so it is a changing of the mind. And it is to have, you know, and it's, and it's by then, you know, when you think of this mind change, it, it, it constitutes even more than just a change of mind. It's sort of code for a renewed worldview that you have now a new world and life view mm. of yourself and of the world around you as it relates to God. So it is really a, a, a change, a fundamental totalizing change in the, in the sinner who repents. There is a complete new worldview that is adopted and and that is so true and it and it's like you know we 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 go after all of these different social ills and we cry down the sins of the people and the nation and we complain about you know what's going on in the world in in this area morally or socially or eth, you know uh, culturally or whatever um but really we understand the wisdom of god in commissioning the church to preach the gospel of repentance because with repentance, you don't now have to go address all these issues, <laughs> right, and start running people through a catalog of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, remarkably, repentance is to be closely associated with regeneration, and it leads to a fundamental change in a person's worldview, and much of that is instantaneous, uh, as, uh, as John says, You've no need of anyone to teach you anything because you have an anointing from the Holy One that teaches you concerning all things. Mm -hmm. So there is this sort of instantaneous sanctification that happens in our lives through repentance that that, that fundamentally and definitively begins to correct our thinking on all these fundamental issues related to this life. And that is a work of the Spirit. That is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. And uh, yeah, it's connected so to regeneration. Yeah, it's yeah. connected to regeneration. You know, where your eyes were closed, now they're open. You know, your heart, your heart was stone, now it's flesh. It it beats, it feels, it. You know, your 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 brain is is transformed. It's renewed. You're a new creation, and and there's there's permanent and significant realities to that change um, that are evident. And so then he goes, now he transits, and that's a good transition point where he talks about elements in true repentance. Uh, (laughs) And on page 68, he goes to the Westminster Shorter Catechism and it asks, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is repentance unto life is a saving grace. I love that term, a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Uh, what a great answer uh, the divines put together for that. I mean, hatred for sin, grief, uh, These these aren't often terms used in normal everyday Christianity um, from the the modern American pulpit. Um, These are terms that often probably get you removed from most pulpits in America. Uh, But I love that. Repentance into life is first and foremost, it's a saving grace. It's a, a supernatural grace of God brought to the, brought to the sinner where now the sinner Response, and then he lists uh, what five um, five elements. First, a sense of shame, a humbling, sorrow and regret. Those two as as one. Uh, a distance of sin for what it is, and then fifthly, the recognition of the pardon of of God. And so let's mm-hmm. let's just kind of take those one by one real real quickly and and comment on those. So a sense of shame, humbling. What 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 there sticks out to you? Well, what sticks out to me there is what the confessions go on to speak about in terms of man in the state of sin and misery, mm. and that no language that we have can actually approximate the the dilemma that the sinner is in. And that repentance, when seen on the backdrop of 
of our plight, sin and misery, this greatest of all spiritual dilemmas, uh, repentance is the sweetest word known to mankind. Because in, in the state of sin and misery, we are truly in a state of hopelessness. We are in a state of absolute dejection and absolute uh, uh, you know, despair. And uh, when we understand uh, the gravity of sin and the gravity of condemnation and the gravity of judgment, then repentance is, is it's like honey on the honeycomb, Amen. so to speak. It, it just becomes uh, this idea where it restores and it revives and it revitalizes. And, and t- as you know, Paul talk, or the, uh, Peter talks about in Acts, you know, times of refreshing will come upon you right, through repentance, and and therefore any sense of shame, which you talk today about shaming people or feeling ashamed or being ashamed, and like you said, I mean, in many modern American pulpits, uh, that language is just unacceptable. It doesn't lift people up. It doesn't encourage people. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't you know, it doesn't give people uh, the best version of themselves or whatever they try to tell you nowadays, and you know, they, they, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't do it for people emotionally, right? Uh, we begin, a lot of times in the gospel, people try to begin with the end of the process yeah. before the process has even begun. They want to begin by reassuring people of God's love and grace and mercy and goodness and faithfulness and all of that without first dealing with the issue of sin, but when you deal with sin, you will incur this humility and shame that uh, Sinclair Ferguson's talking about here. You will go into a state of sorrow and regret uh, once you have seen this uh, for what it is. And therefore, uh, on page 68, you know, Sinclair points out, and I think he does a great job of pointing this out, but that, you know, repentance helps us to redeem the time. It recognizes that you are sorrowful and you are remorseful and regretful of all the time that you wasted uh, on your sin. And so there's this redeeming value uh, that happens in light of repentance. But if we don't feel the shame and the humility uh, that comes from, look, uh, your sin is an offense to God, and that should produce a, a great amount of shame, but also it should humble you and bring you low yeah. to recognize in the sense that you are powerless. You are absolutely powerless to deal with your sin so that your only hope is to confess and forsake your sin before God. Yeah. And that then, of course, uh, leads to this idea of sorrow and regret for the time wasted and, uh, and preparing the way for, uh, for the redemption of what, sim- uh, what repentance produces. So it's very, it's a very, um, you know, it's a very amazing dynamic in the life of the of the believer, uh, and and what it produces, according to Sinclair on page sixty nine, is going to be a distaste for sin and for what it is. I think yeah. that right there, Mike, was one of the most important points of the whole chapter when he said when he speaks of a distaste for sin for what it is. And I think that that is what's missing for a lot of folks today is that they don't look at sin for what it is. They look at sin for what they think it is, for what they feel it is, for what they've made it out to be, for what the culture says that it is, or for what their church says that it is. But they don't see it for what it is according to God's law, according to God's word. And so that becomes very important. If you don't define sin rightly, then you won't deal with sin rightly. So yeah, that's important. Yeah, and I think uh, this this makes sense only in the context of the perfections of God, right? Like we're not just wanting people to feel guilty just to feel guilty, right? And to to spiral out to depression, but when we we compare and contrast the fallen state of man, who we are, in light of who God is, right? That, that's the context of what we're talking about, of, of a sense of shame, 
right? Like when we look at who God is, the response and our repentance is, I'm, I'm not that. I'm, I'm so infinitely far from that reality. Like that mm. humbles us. That's what produces the humbleness. That's what produces the shame. That's what produces the sorrow and regret. That's what produces the hatred, the absolute hatred for sin because of who God is and who I am. Um, and I'm teaching currently teaching a, a, a systematic theology class with a, a high school kind of co-op Christian thing. And this past week, we were talking about the attributes of God. And of course, you know, with high schoolers, they all, we love the love of God, the mercy of God. But I I had to drop Psalm 5 on them, right? Which says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Right. And and I just kind of let that verse sit on when I'm talking to high schoolers and even adults at that matter, you know, just kind of sit on our conscience because we don't often think of the hatred of God, right? Towards sin, that his very nature um, abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. And the reality is, is that, that was us, right? That that's that's mankind, and mm-hmm. you know when when we we approach it, we got to remember because we're now we're now deep into this book. When we approach the idea of of repentance, it's because and and you nailed it. It's it's a repentance towards God and a repentance from sin, from something, from from who we are because of the glories and majesty of God that that draws us us near. And I think his his fifth point, I, I wrote big, big letters, important, with a filled up the plate page with exclamation points. And he says this. Almost almost as big as my letters that said amen. Yes. Um, <laughs> and to read it in middle page 69.5, he says, but there is another element which is all too often easily forgotten. And that absolutely, that's why I just scribbled all over this page, perhaps because it, it's, it, uh, scarcely seems consistent with these other aspects. He says, true repentance always involves the recognition of the pardon of God. And at that moment, that's when we breathe the sigh of relief. Ugh, we're pardoned by God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism rightly says, we repent because we have an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. It is the grace of God which teaches us to fear as well as uh, relieves us to fear. And I, I wrote Amazing Grace, and I talked about, you know, the, the John Newton song, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Right? Grace did both of those things. It, it caused me to fear, and it set me free from fear. You know, and that's, that is the point that I think so many Christians, now pastorally speaking, you know, I talk to so many Christians whose whose conscience is so soft, and 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 they they sin. They did something stupid. They clicked on the site that they're not supposed to click on, and and they are so remorseful. They're weeping. They're sorrowful. And getting them to point five pastorally is is so important. Yeah, you yeah. absolutely need to feel the shame. To to be humbled by by who you are, you need to be sorrowful, full of regret. You need to grow in hatred towards your sin, but you also need to run in the freedom of grace. Right, you run back to God. He's not. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't turned from you. He's entered into covenant with you, and the blood of His Son. And as long as Christ is there upon the throne, you're secure. Right there's there's hope there. So I stole your thunder because you you wrote big amen across no, brother, it. So that's, no, brother, that's that's absolutely perfect. And I think um, you know this is why he he 
he draws from Psalm 130, mm. which Psalm 130 is is so good. And I thought I'd read a couple of verses out of that. But, uh, you know, he, he's illustrating this short little psalm, Psalm 130, which is only eight verses, but it reminds us that there is a plentiful redemption in God. And what you just said right now, uh, uh, Mike, is so important because I think uh, you hear a lot of folks today, at least I have, that are no longer pulling from people like the Puritans for fear that the Puritans will condemn them yeah. because they had such a high view of sins, uh, devastation, and, 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 and uh, they had a high view of man's depravity, we can say. And you can read the Puritans talk about self-abasement and talk about, uh, you know, the gravity of man's sin and those kinds of things. But it, it is impossible for us to disagree with the Puritans at that point because uh, even as uh, Sinclair talks about, you know, when we understand what sin is, right, when we have a proper understanding of that, and, and we say with David, you know, in your sight, I, you know, uh, against you and you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When we understand the gravity of that, and we we've come to the place where you see the 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 oh, you know the heinous nature of your sin, and you come under that humility and that condemnation and and all of those things. And then when you understand that there's a recognition of God's pardon of in your life, how much sweeter then is the pardoning power of God? How much greater is the grace of God once you've understood the gravity of your sin? And therefore, Psalm 130, I think, to me, illustrates kind of the total picture. He, you know, he, he speaks of crying out to the Lord for mercy. And he says in verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And so I don't think you can get much deeper than that. And I don't think the Puritans, for example, would say anything beyond that. They're not saying anything beyond that. Mm. That if the Lord were to mark iniquity, no one could stand, not a single one of us. We're all damned, and we are all condemned, period. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And now notice that, right? It's... it's it's interesting, but that the, the concept of fearing the Lord is not alleviated, yeah. but it is changed. It is transformed. Where we live in fear and dread of the repercussions of our sin, but now, because of God's forgiveness, we live in fear of the holiness of God. Totally different. And he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and is and in his word I hope. And this, And then he goes on to say, for my soul, this is Psalm 130, verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all our iniquities. Wow. And so that idea of a plentiful redemption it just shows us that what can be greater than our sin? Well, when sin abounded, grace abounded that much more. And so when we understand having a high view of your sin, so to speak, which is just to say acknowledging the gravity of your sin for what it is, uh, in a sense, does not even compare to the abundant redemption that we have in God and the forgiveness that he supplies. And so at the bottom of page 69, Sinclair Ferguson says, only when we turn away from looking at our own sin to look at the face of God, to find his pardoning grace, do we begin to repent. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's a big one there. Only by seeing that there is grace and forgiveness with him would we ever dare repent and thus return to the fellowship and the presence of the Father. So I think that is so important, right? It's, it's just like there's inseparable or what? Well, inseparable is faith and repentance. But at the same time, inseparable is this idea of looking to yourself, but furthermore, looking to God. And so uh, you can't, in true repentance, it's not just looking to God. It's also looking and acknowledging yourself in, in your state. Yeah. And, and thankfully, we don't stay in a vision of ourselves in our own sin. 
but then we look away from self and look to God. So I thought that was really well balanced and uh, very important. Amen. And at the um, top of page seventy, he he brings out I think a, a a very important point, and he says this is why in the New Testament repentance is seen as a gift of the gospel, which comes to us through faith in Christ, because. Uh, a lot of times we're going to hear a conversation like this and we perceive this is something, now this is a work. This is something I need to well up within my willpower and my myself to do and to accomplish, uh, pull myself up by my own bootstraps and, and make this happen. Yeah, Is exactly. that a true thought? Uh, exactly right. That's what man is always tempted to do. That is what man always thinks needs to be done. But faith is the opposite of works, Scripture says. If faith does not abide by the principle of works, it's opposite to it. And so it is grounded, uh, I'm thinking here of a passage like Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 16. Instead, it is grounded by grace, right? So what does it say? But, you know, the promise is not of works, but of faith, in order that it might be according to grace. And so if you would have the grace of God, it will not be given to you by works, that is why faith is so important. It mm. won't be given to you by pulling up your own moral bootstraps, so to speak, right? And sort of generating some sort of performance uh, in and of yourself. Don't get on the treadmill of self-righteousness, thinking that you need to earn God's favor uh, by your own uh, faithfulness and your own zeal. We can't earn God's favor. That's the whole point of it. And so it has to be something grabbed by the invisible hand of faith in order to procure uh, the grace of God. So absolutely important to point that out, Mike. Yeah. And, and you know, just to quote Paul, one of the uh, passages that he quote, quotes here is Acts chapter 11, verse 18. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also has God granted repentance that leads to life. You know, it, it's just, that is so rich um, and needs to be a part of our, our central to our theology of, of the Christian life. And so, he now transitions to signs of repentance. Uh, because Every theologically, this is a gift from God. This is this is intimately tied to the gospel, to regeneration, uh, to to all of those things. Um, now, there's going to be outward signs, uh, realities of a changed life, um, and he lists a handful of what seven um, uh, points here: earnestness, eagerness uh, to clear themselves, indignation, fear. Uh, longing, uh, zeal, and and punishment. Who punishment? Um, and so <clears throat> he he bases this off of Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse eight and eleven. And so let me read that, and then I want to have you uh, make make some comments on this. So Second Corinthians chapter seven, starting verse eight, right there on page seventy. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What a great comparison. For see what earnest this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Um, and obviously that's the foundation for the rest of his discussion that, that pretty much closes out this, this chapter. Um, so Miller, why don't you kind of just break that down for us? You know, uh, this is one of the passages I've always gone to over the years. Um, I'm thinking in the context of church membership and hearing people's testimony in order for them to uh, have a valid testimony for the sake of church membership. And when they don't, and when that testimony is sort of sub-biblical, and when you as a pastor are concerned that this is not someone 
who has genuinely undergone conversion because their testimony is rooted in, let's say, moralism or it's superficial or there is evidence that this person has not yet truly repented of some sins or they're still living in a sinful lifestyle or something like that, um, then this is a passage I've gone to time and time again uh, to say, hey, look, when genuine repentance has occurred, these are the characteristics that follow. And when we don't have some of these characteristics uh, that we can actually say, this is my experience, that this is what I experienced uh, when I came to the Lord. There, there was this, um, you know, there was this uh, kind of repentance that leads to an earnestness. And when, when Paul says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, there is, uh, there is that sort of initial sanctification uh, that produces a zeal in us, right? As he'll go on to say, what zeal? And the same thing, what earnestness, what determination uh, a people have uh, when they have genuinely repented, there is this determination to do what is good. And so when he says, you know, what earnestness to clear yourself in other words, it produced in them a desire uh, to make things right. And so I think he even talks about in the book, Mike, uh, an allusion back to Zacchaeus, right? And the, and the restoration of what he had done wrong in his life and how he had desired to make things right. And that's, that's exactly right. That's, that's how it happens. It, it, it's when you tr- truly, genuinely repent, you want everything to be put right in your life. It's almost as if you have a bit of heaven anticipated in your repentance, where you want to see a new creation. You want to see everything renewed. You want to see everything be put right. And that's what that earnestness is seeking. It's seeking to bring your life under this sort of, uh, under this sort of uh, kingdom rule right, where everything is put right in the world. And you try to do that in your own repentance as much as is possible, whatever is within your grasp to make right in your life. And I've seen that, brother. I've seen that throughout the Christian church uh, when people know that things are not right. Uh, I've had people reach out to me over the years and say, hey, you know, um, uh, I want to apologize to you for, you know, this and that. I, I feel like something was not right here. And I just don't want to have anything in my life where it's not right. And, uh, and you got to really appreciate that yeah. because it shows that there's a genuine zeal for true repentance there. And that's a work of the Spirit. And that is something that, um, that we can't do. And it's a miracle when it happens. And, uh, and so I just think this is a perfect passage to celebrate the nature of true repentance. Yeah. And he he says that here, uh, kind of towards the bottom of page 72, repentance means the whole of life returning to the purpose of God. Therefore, it continues throughout the entire life, right? Repentance is not um, merely only the beginning of Christianity. It is the mark of a Christian. I mean, every single waking moment. Um, of their life were were in we should have an attitude of continual repentance of grieving of mourning of of regret like and it's not that we're you know the puritans often get and i love how you brought up the puritans because we should be so close to the puritans uh and read them often because they were were masters uh of this and we often think of them as just walking around sucking on lemons and looking for people who are having fun right so they could stop it um and that's not you read them and you quickly find no these guys their souls soared um, in the glories of God and in the mercies of God. And these were pastors pastoring people, hurting people. Um, and they were master physicians uh, in, in theology in that sense. And there is this <clears throat> 
kind of idea, this this popular idea in Christian culture today that regards looking and examining the fruit of repentance in a Christian's life as a push towards legalism. You brought up, you know, membership and well, how dare you, Emilio, question my Christian confession and 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 all those. And I had recently uh, encountered some opposition on social media. Uh, I shared a quote from a popular uh, teacher and and it said something along the lines of a Christian should abhor sin, renounce the world, crush pride, surrender his or her life, exercise faith, and see Christ as precious and embrace the cross. That was that was the quote. Um, you know, and I just put amen. Like, yes, we we Christians should abhor sin, renounce the world, crush pride. That should all these things should be um, a mark of our life. And uh, a guy came at me for being legalist. For, for promoting legalism, right? And now legalism is is a pursuit of salvation through law keeping, right? And and kind of some Pharisaical idea. And, and, you know, sadly, he's making some sort of category error, I guess, you know, in the sense of he's misunderstanding that we're not talking about the, 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 the root of it. We're talking about the fruit of salvation. Um, you're not, you're not doing all this to enter in to salvation. You're doing all this because of salvation. This is the natural flow of the Christian life. And if these, if these realities are not a part of your daily experiment experience as a Christian, well, there's a great cause for concern. Um, if you can with, with a clear conscience, sin, Right, you know, big or small. If we if we can if we can, uh, you know, categorize them like that, and and just be perfectly fine with it. I'm going to question the genuineness of your faith, because uh, I don't see a mark of the Holy Spirit. I don't see a, a a reality of the Christian life, and I don't think that's legalism. I think that's that's biblical Christianity. I think that's in in pastoral ministry. Um, it, it's good shepherding of a person's soul, you know, of a of a of a person that God has given to us to shepherd. And we look at their life and we say, brother or sister, this this is not evidence of a Christian, and and I'm concerned, you know, yeah. and. Sadly, today, that's not a part of pastoral ministry. Well, let me say something about that, because I think you were, you were attacked on unduly, because you should be concerned, as a Christian, anybody, pastor, or, or anyone, you should be concerned any time you're not allowed to sound like the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And so whenever you have people with whatever hyper-grace theology, let's say, or whatever, uh, whether it's hyperstringent, you know, soft legalism, let's say, or whether it is a hyper grace dynamic that is at work there. If you cannot sound like the Apostle Paul in these various passages of Scripture, if you can't sound like Paul when he says in Philippians, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, right? Um, then I don't know that you have the right balance. And whatever theology or whatever theologians you're listening to, um, they have uh, they have led you to summon balance there. And a lot of people listen, it's been my experience that when people fear this kind of language of real piety and real tests of piety and examining, right? Uh, doing self-examination, introspection, these kinds of things, healthy introspection, not morbid introspection, but healthy spiritual introspection, that these folks are after something because uh, they are sort of uh, overwhelmed uh, by how they can alleviate their own guilt or their own conscience. And their answer is right. The answer is to look to Christ. There's no question about that. Their answer is to seek fullness in Christ. But the same Christ that gives you that fullness also tells you to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And so, uh, and, and you cannot just do that by shouting mantras and slogans like, look to Christ. Mm. You see, 
And so we have to be very careful. There's no, in a sense, for sanctification, there's no silver bullet. There's no golden key. Uh, sanctification is as the um, as the great reform uh, John Calvin said, right? Sanctification is a lifelong agonizing process, mm. lifelong agonizing process. And any book that that portends to give you some sort of easy way out uh, by supposedly, you know, the marvelous grace of God, or just simply looking to Christ in union with Christ. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I've come to the place now, Mike, where I'm leery of any theology that seeks to zap the tension out of biblical theology because there are tensions, there are paradoxes, and and uh, uh, this is the way that it is. And uh, any, you know, we, you know, in our last episode, we talked about the, the, the topics at G3, right? And I think uh, both, when you talk about the relationship of Christ and culture, the extremes, I think, are wrong, right? Theonomy seeks to destroy the tension by advancing some kind of dominionist theology to kingdom theology, seeks to zap the same tension by sort of just saying, well, we just have to respect, you know, the, the common grace realm for what it is and leave it alone. And both are wrong. And we are in a life of Christian tension right now. The same thing with sanctification. Any sanctification model that tells you you can be sinlessly perfected is wrong. And it seeks to, 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 again, seeks to zap the tension out of Christianity. Or on the other side, that seeks to say, look, um, just look to Christ and you don't have to do anything. That's wrong as well. And so we have to always maintain that sort of tension within our walk and to understand that there is a call uh, to persevere, to endure, to labor, uh, to uh, you know, engage in Christian duty, to uh, work uh, out our salvation. And we can't ever forget that. Amen. Well, yeah. wow. What a great... What a great discussion on a topic that is often frowned upon in modern Christianity, the topic of repentance. And, you know, for our listeners, as we talk about repentance, our heart should be able to sing, right? Like mm-hmm. you said, it should be honey on our, our, our lips. Um, that is the, the grace of repentance, and it shouldn't be mm-hmm. a curse word in Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shouldn't be frowned upon. It shouldn't be avoided. It should be something that we, we, we cherish and we, we call ourselves to. We call our, our fellow Christians to. We call, you know, it should be a central part of our gospel proclamation, um, and, and we should not be uh, weary or afraid of it. And so my, my soul is definitely edified and I'm looking forward to our next discussion, the doctrine on which, uh, the article on which the church stands or falls, right? Martin Luther, the article is the head and cornerstone of the church, which, uh, alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church without it. The church of God cannot subsist one hour. And that is the doctrine of justification. And so I'm looking forward to our, our, uh, conversation on chapter nine and Sinclair's, uh, Ferguson's book and want to say thank you to all of our listeners. I pray that this conversation was edifying to you. Please like and share uh, this important topic and hopefully it it brings comfort to to people and clarity and and for those that are are struggling in sin and the depression and, and find themselves wallowing in the mire that the gospel offers freedom. Uh, it offers it offers comfort to your soul uh, in this. So please like and share this episode, uh, and remember to check out Red Grace Media Live on on Sunday nights and redgracemedia.com um, as Pastor Emilio continues uh, talking about all sorts of other things uh, that are on his heart. So God bless you and thanks for listening.